Welcome to the CSIS Cogitasia Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colm Quinn. On this episode, we're exploring the challenge of feeding the hungry in South Asia. The issues of nutrition, markets, government programs, climate change and technology all play a role in affecting how food is produced in the region. This week we'll look at Bangladesh and how it feeds its 156 million population. We'll also talk about the new policy initiatives in India that are complicating the country's efforts to support its farmers. But first, we start with the basics. What is food security? My definition of food security is that all people have access to safe, nutritious, and affordable food. And every single word of that is important because it's, it is about access, it is about safe food, about the quality of the food. It's also very important it's about nutrition. So it can't just be about access to food that, that doesn't have the right kind of vitamins and minerals that your body needs. The FAO, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, does give four pillars as far as food security, and those four are availability, access, utilization, and stability which really, when you break down those definitions, are go back to what I said. So again, access to safe, nutritious, and affordable food. That's Kimberly Flowers, director of the Global Food Security Program at CSIS. She also talks about the problem of food shortages and malnutrition and how they're affecting Asia. Well, around the globe, there's about 795 million who don't have enough uh, daily calories to eat. And that number has gone down significantly. Uh, When I started narrowing my career in food and agriculture, it was about a billion people about five years ago. Last year is 805. A lot of people wonder why I make that definition even from last year to this year, but that's 10 more million people that are no longer food secure. So we've seen a decrease um, in the past years, both of people living in extreme poverty and of people that are hungry, but still obviously 795 is too many. Um, And what's interesting is more than half of that, 490 million people um, in Asia and the specific region are hungry. So when you look at what's happening globally, the Asian specific region um, are a huge portion of that. In Bangladesh, high economic growth and development of many sectors, including agriculture, have affected the food security outlook of a country that has historically been at risk. You know, when you look at the region as a whole, Asia and the Pacific region has had an average of 7.6% economic growth compared to 3.4% in the rest of the world. So so the region as a whole is doing a lot better. And Bangladesh has been doing very well, especially since its independence. So it averages about 6% in economic growth over the recent years, um, which is interesting because, you know, globally we've had a bit of an economic stagnation and a lot of volatility. And also when you look at Bangladesh across its development sectors, it's had a lot of success. So national poverty rates have declined quite a bit going from about 60% in 1991 down to about 32% in 2010. And even though malnutrition is still a very large issue in that country, it's also gone down significantly. So about 70% um, of rural Bangladeshi children were stunted in the early 1990s. Now there's about 41%. And when I say stunted, that has to do with children under five, their height and weight ratio. So their their economic, not their economic, but their um, development stage and and how they're, whether they're getting the right kind of um, vitamins and, and nutritions. 
What's really interesting around this is, is specifically looking at rice production. So Bangladeshi, their, their staple crop and what they eat majority of is rice. Um, since independence, they've tripled their rice production, which is huge, especially when that's coming on the heels of a massive um, uh, famine that happened in Bangladesh in um, 1974, which was actually the largest that we've seen to date, an estimated of 1.5 million people died during that famine. So the government is, it takes food security very seriously, um, and they, they have very strong um, strategic plans and government leadership around food security and nutrition. Um, and the U.S. government, of course, which I'll talk about a bit later, has invested quite a bit in the country. Flowers has just returned from Bangladesh on a fact-finding trip, and she shares her analysis. We were there for about two weeks, about two weeks ago, um, on the ground doing research, looking specifically at the um, efficiency of U.S. government investments and long-term development programs around agricultural production as well as nutrition. And we saw a number of things that were that were quite fascinating, but one element, and, and we have a commentary that just came out about this that you should read, but one element that's, that's very interesting related to food security is around wheat. And so just as there are, you know, health viruses that can have a detrimental effect, things like Ebola. There are also diseases and pests that happens on crops that can have huge issues. And something that we saw why we were in the field was U.S. scientists that had just discovered something called wheat blast. And wheat blast is a fungus that can destroy a crop. And this is the first time that we've seen this in Bangladesh and in all of Asia. So it's a big deal. Um, this has only been seen before only in the Americas. It started in Brazil. And what's interesting is it can wipe out 90% of the crop. So you have farmers who have been growing rice for you know 30 years, and then U.S. government programs come in and, and work with them to try to diversify their crop and work on mechanization and better inputs and supply, and they grow wheat, and then here comes in a disease that destroys all of it, um, despite the good intentions, of course, behind it. And it's hard to tell at this point. It's way too soon to know how it spread there or why. Um, it's highly likely that it's due to climate change. Uh, when you look at Bangladesh, and in 2011, it was um, named as the country with the high, being most vulnerable to climate change. But the whole Asia and South Asia region has um, is more vulnerable to climate change than, than anywhere else. And especially you see that in the agriculture sector. So what happens is when, um, you know, last year was the hottest year on record. So when you see temperatures rise, you also see an increase in pests and diseases on crops. So hard to say right now that the wheat blast was due to climate change, but highly likely. Um, and that's just an interesting thing that we noticed when we were there, um, and it's something that could, because of porous borders, move over into India. So even though Bangladesh is mostly producing um, rice, you look at India, and India is the second largest wheat producer in the world. So if this disease, wheat blast, moves over into India, it could have a detrimental effect there. Even large Asian countries like India, where the aggregate production of food is immense, face big challenges. Richard Rosso, CSS's Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies, describes India's unique situation. Well, India is a major producer of many different types of agriculture and food, including cereals, uh, vegetables, fruit, protein, uh, and many kinds of nuts. They tend to rank in the top three in a lot of the areas where they have uh, focus. So production uh, is high, uh, could always be higher, I, I would presume. And sometimes you might say that uh, they, they produce... Uh, a little overproducing grains and a little bit underproduced on proteins. By and large, production is pretty good. Uh, where they really run into problems, though, uh, is in terms of processing, in terms of transportation, uh, farmers being able to sell effectively on an open market. So uh, uh, production uh, is is probably the best part of the value chain there. 
um, but post-production work, both in terms of uh, infrastructure and moving it to market, uh, as well as uh, pricing issues, um, uh, that's where India runs into uh, bigger problems. Both the Indian central government, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and India's states have taken some steps to reform the agricultural sector. But Rosso explains that for now, the focus is elsewhere. You know, so far, two years into Modi's uh, term in office, um, he's talked about agriculture reform uh, a little bit less fervently than reforms of other parts of the economy. Uh, there's been some small steps, most recently in the budget that was released on February 29th, 2016, uh, where they've taken some small steps to improve farmer livelihoods. But for the most part, it's received considerable less attention uh, for policy than, uh, than things like manufacturing, like internet provision, things like that. So by and large, uh, it hasn't been a huge focus, uh, certainly on the campaign trail, since most of your uh, voting base is farmers, more than 50% of the workforce is farmers, you've got to say the right things. But in terms of tangible actions, though, it's been playing second base behind manufacturing. Based on the current policy landscape, Rosso believes the progress of Modi's Make in India initiative may hold the key to getting large agricultural reforms on the agenda. Well, Make in India, I think you touched on exactly the right point. Uh, I think in Modi's mind, he's got to make sure that Make in India is successful before I think he'll actually dive into deeper reforms in agriculture. Uh, right now, you think about for a country that produces uh, enough food to feed itself, along with 20 to 40 percent, depending on the study, uh, food that's produced actually gets wasted by the time it, uh, it, would, it would be able to reach market, uh, you know, both in terms of um, uh, can, can they capture uh, more of it for food processing? Can they also increase transportation to get it to market on time? There's a lot of efficiencies there that they could work out. Um, if they do that, though, the net result is they're going to have an oversupply of labor on agriculture. And the question is, where do those people go to? Tend to be less educated, uh, not have as many skills uh, for, to, for conducting other crafts. So unless there's uh, a more vibrant uh, manufacturing, basic assembly kind of industry in India, uh, there's no place for them to go to. So I actually do think that Make in India is kind of the linchpin. If that's successful, he may be empowered to do bolder reforms in the agriculture side. And as the saying goes, all politics is local. And there's no doubt this also affects the food market situation in India for smallholder farmers. Well, you know, India still has a heavily regulated market for when and how farmers can sell their produce, uh, generally to government-sponsored markets, or there's some provision for private markets under these APMC Act, the Agriculture Produce Marketing Committee Acts, that states have adopted. But to get one of these privately licensed markets, uh, you tend to have, have to be friends and family with somebody important in the state or federal government, and sometimes they don't even operate any more efficiently than the government markets do. So, um, there's, again, there's been small moves that the Modi government has taken in terms of uh, trying to establish an electronic uh, marketing system for farmers to sell directly. Uh, also, uh, one of the first announcements after the government came in was to allow uh, farm markets in cities so that farmers can take their produce directly to cities, set up a stall, and sell there directly. So, you know, again, I, I don't know you consider this wholesale transition about how farmers actually get their produce into market. Um, but there's been some small steps. But, but again, uh, this is one area that I think the bigger steps would have to wait until after we see uh, additional career opportunities for farmers, uh, just in case they, they, they lose their employment as production, as transportation increases. The problems are not limited to Bangladesh and India. Countries throughout Southeast and South Asia face numerous hurdles in ensuring their citizens are fed and farmers can get their produce to market. Back to Kimberly Flowers. Throughout the world, you see 63% of 
the world's malnourished people are in Asia. And there, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and even though we've seen a lot of progress in that, there's still a lot of rural people that depend on agriculture, but yet are food insecure. One of the interesting things about the Southeast Asia region is the two extreme sort of juxtapositions that you see between food security countries that are very secure, such as Brunei or Singapore, which are some of the richest countries in Asia. And then you have countries that are seriously vulnerable and are have very high index is what we say on the global hunger index. And some of those countries are Laos, Vietnam, Timor-Leste, Indonesia, Myanmar, Philippines, um, that still have quite, quite a ways to go. Some of the challenges that you see um, specifically around population and around climate change. So the population growth, as that expands, um, they expect that in Asia alone, throughout the region, that there's going to be 5.3 billion people by 2050. And that's 5.3 billion out of a total of, you know, a little over 9 billion globally. So huge surge in population there. That means you need to have an increase in agriculture production of about 77%. So you have issues with climate change, so the most vulnerable there. So you have problems with soil salinity or heat index rising or less arable land. You have problems of getting quality seas or linking to markets, but you have an expanding population. So it's a really interesting, complex problem of trying to be able to feed a growing population when you have limited and dwindling resources, particularly because of things like climate change. One of the things I also want to talk about is equitable access. So even if you increase agricultural production, um, you still have to have the infrastructure and the policies in place to order to get that food out to a variety of populations. And then let's talk about smallholder farmers. Um, there are about 100 million smallholder farmers in South Asia, and most of them are poor and food insecure. So it's, it's a bit of an oxymoron that you have smallholder farmers who are food insecure. That happens, unfortunately, uh, around the world. Some of the challenges that they have are many of the same challenges that smallholders have everywhere when it comes to lack of access to inputs. And by inputs, I'm talking about quality seeds, quality fertilizer, but it's also access to markets. So making sure you're linking up smallholders to larger, whether it's local or regional or international markets, to get their products out. It's also about diversification, making sure they're not doing the same crop or that they're expanding their crop in season by things like good agricultural practices like drip irrigation, for example, or increasing irrigation in general. There's also an issue with post-harvest waste. So that means um, not damaging the crops after they've been harvested, making sure that they're in quality crates, for example, plastic crates, so that um, tomatoes don't get damaged. That's just one example. Um, so smallholders in general um, have, a, have a lot of challenges they're facing, but what's particularly interesting about this area that I mentioned before is climate change. So when you keep in mind that they are disaster prone, there's going to be a number of whether it's cyclones or, you know, again, increasing sea levels or a number of things that are going to happen with climate change that even though it's the Western world that are often doing the things that are creating climate change, it is areas in the developing countries, especially smallholder farmers, that are going to be affected the most. Richard Rosso points to two areas where India could take mutually beneficial steps to alleviate the regional food security situation in South Asia. Well, India's got a lot of lessons that, have, that they've learned, a lot of lessons they probably could learn from their neighbors, but a lot of technical expertise as well. Uh, great universities, uh, great academics, uh, both uh, in agriculture and related fields that they could share with their neighbors. And they do to some extent, but that could always be augmented and increased. 
The second thing, which is more immediate, is, you know, you think about if you're a farmer uh, on the border areas and you've got very little connectivity to the towns on your side uh, of the border, you know, maybe the closest market and maybe there's better prices even on the other side of the border. So can there be uh, easier facilitation, legal facilitation of cross-border agriculture trade between Indian's neighbors as well? So certainly India's got a lot to offer, technical expertise, um, but also in the near term, you've seen some establishment of border markets, border hots as they're called, between India and Bangladesh. And it's a great idea. I think it should be expanded, and we should make sure that you know farmers can find the closest market, even if it's a little bit across the border, would make some sense. And amid all this, what is the United States doing? Kimberly Flowers assesses U.S. efforts to enhance agricultural production and nutrition in South Asia. I think one thing to think about is how global food security affects U.S. strategic interests. So we saw when the food price spikes went up in 07, 08, um, that was a crisis around the world and particularly hard hit the South South Asia region. Um, You saw riots around the world. You saw a variety of of people that couldn't get the food that they needed, again, going back to access or stability um, or availability because prices were too high. And that affects national security. And so what happened was the U.S. government, first under Bush and then under President Obama, as well as the international community reacted by investing a lot of money in long-term agriculture and malnutrition development programs. So in 2010, the U.S. government um, launched something called Feed the Future, which is the U.S. government um, global food security and nutrition initiative. And its overarching goals are to reduce um, stunting by 20 percent and to reduce Um, those living in poverty by 20%. And they selected, um, they have 19 countries that are their focus countries, and um, Bangladesh is is one of those. And they've seen a a significant increase, actually 16% reduction in stunting in the area where Feed the Future works. They choose a specific sort of geographic area um, within each country. And overall, when when you look at Asia, in 2014 alone, which is really the latest kind of most informed statistics we have of how the Feed the Future programs have been working, more than 2.7 million households in Asia have benefited directly from Feed the Future support um, and the variety of ways that they do that. Some of it is working directly with smallholder farmers to teach better agricultural practices, um, increasing their farm sales, for example, by nearly 150 million, which is quite dramatic over previous years. Um, it also is reaching out specifically to rice. So I mentioned rice earlier. And in Asia, more than 90% of the world's rice production comes from Asia. And so the U.S. government, through this Feed the Future program, is targeting specifically rice farmers. And they reached almost 650,000 and 214 alone. Again, working with them on increasing high-yielding rice varieties, so putting better inputs. It goes back to inputs and seeds. So when they give them better high-yielding rice varieties that are less susceptible to things like climate change or um, other related stresses like flooding or drought or soil salinity, it can make a huge difference because that farmer is able to not only increase their yield, but then increase their income. And that's really what it all comes down to. That's how you're going to lift a smallholder out of poverty um, and keep it more sustainable. So you see a lot of connections to the private sector um, as well so that these things can continue uh, when donor assistance does not. And in Bangladesh, um, it has the second or third, depends on how you look at the budget, um, one of the largest Feed the Future investments around the world. is So it gets about $50 million a year in U.S. investments over the last five years. Um, and that's through a number of agencies. So USAID is the lead agency in this, but it's a whole-of-government effort um, with 11 different agencies engaged. And so, for example, in Bangladesh, um, USDA, who has ex- expertise in, say, food safety, is working on food safety concerns and issues, which is a big deal there, 
especially in the aquaculture industry. Um, but you see USAID working on things like mechanization or roads or infrastructure or other kind of market linkages, um, as well as teaching nutritional practices and nutritional or educational messages to mothers and children um, to work on the stunting issue of, of the height and weight of children under five. And that was Kimberly Flowers bringing us to the end of the show. Editing for the podcast was done by Lauren Abu Ali, and the podcast was written and produced by Jeff Bean. I'm Colm Quinn. Thanks for listening.